Our consecutive reading of God's Word takes us back to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. And continuing our reading from this morning uh, at verse 21. And to verse 30. Genesis 29 and verse 21. After which I'll make a few comments. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah his handmaid to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. Amen. And as I mentioned in the, in the prayers, that what a man soweth, that also shall he reap. And that is certainly what we see here in Jacob's life. Uh, he who had uh, deceived, had deceived his brother and father as regarding the, the birthright and the firstborn blessing, which is one and the same, or at least connected. And so now he is deceived. And what we see, and I, gather, uh, I continue on from this morning, that idea that they waited. He waited until he was married. He did not take that which was not his. Uh, she was his sister until she becomes his wife. And so he must treat her and preserve her honor. And he does so, and then the seven years are up, as he had agreed with, with Laban. And so he has a right, and so he asks, and so they hold a wedding feast, a wedding feast for a whole week, and after the first day, and no doubt there was some ceremony in seeking the Lord's blessing, he then has her as his wife. And then the question is, did he not notice? Everyone would notice, surely, uh, that there's a different woman being offered. But we have to consider a number of factors. 
uh, which aren't mentioned here but we see in the scriptures that for Uncle Laban to force this upon him probably Uncle Laban gave him one or two too many glasses of wine uh, before he sent him off uh, to the wedding bed the marriage bed so that's very probable and also the fact that his wife may have been covered um, with that, the equivalent that we still see in the Middle East uh, this day as well, that she was covered for modesty's sake. And so he goes into her, he's not, he's not clearly thinking or seeing, uh, and he consummates the marriage until the next morning he discovers that he has been deceived and Laban Obviously, in the family, Laban, a worse deceiver than his nephew, uh, Jacob, it seems. And Laban comes out with this excuse, it must not so be done in our country. Well, if that was the case, that it wasn't the right thing to do, to marry off the younger before the elder, then he had seven years to say that and to rearrange the agreement. But that is just a clear uh, deceitful lie. Uh, therefore, what... what, what um, Jacob says there, wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? It's very true, he was beguiled, he was deceived, he was fooled. But he must fulfill her week, he had the rest of the wedding week, the, 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 whatever they would fill their week with, I mean it would be feasting and drinking to some degree. And so he did so. And yet he will not let go of Rachel. He loved Rachel, he'd worked seven years for her and still desired to have her. This is certainly not as the Lord would desire it, that there is to be one man and one woman and they are to be brought together and here he, he is deceived. The question is, did he make the right choice? Should he have not have been satisfied uh, with Leah as being married to her and not himself become a polygamist? or a bigamist in this case. And whatever the case is, the Lord works all things together for good, as he will do even through uh, him marrying both uh, Leah and Rachel, whom he takes also. And he's given her in advance of the seven years' work, and he takes her after uh, the wedding week uh, with uh, Leah. I think that's... What we see there is, is it comes full circle. The world might call it because it will take, it will take the, foreign, uh, uh, the false religions of, of Hinduism and Buddhism and talk about karma uh, because even the world has noticed that, uh, that evil comes back upon those that do evil. But the Lord says, no, it's not some karma thing. It's not some wound up clock that automatically reacts to a situation. Uh, this is the Lord's judgments through providence. We see that he is judged and it causes no end of trouble, especially when the handmaids are brought in to bear children. There's not a unity amongst the children. It is a rough uh, family. And so let us all be mindful that what we sow, that also shall we reap. If you, if you sow unto righteousness, you will reap unto righteousness and eternal life. I may the Lord bless those thoughts to us. We'll take up our psalm book once again, please, and sing 
our consecutive singing, uh, continuing in Psalm 35, and this time from verse 8, and verse 8 to verse 14. And verse 13 is, is what we were mentioning this morning on fasting. But as for me, when they were sick in sackcloth, sad I mourned, my humbled soul did fast, my prayer into my bosom turned. But we are singing from verse 8 to verse 14. Let ruin seize him unawares, his net he did with all himself let catch, and in the same destruction let him fall. We'll be singing verses 8 to 14 of Psalm 35 to the tune of martyrdom.
Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. chapter 15, and we'll read from verse 10. Luke chapter 15, commencing our reading at verse 10. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now his eldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore his father came his father out and entreated him. 
And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I may, might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Amen. We'll take up our psalm books once again to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 and the first seven verses. O Lord, Psalm 86, a prayer of David. O Lord, do thou bow down thine ear and hear me graciously, that is, with ears of grace, because I saw afflicted am and am in poverty. Because I'm holy, let my soul by thee preserved be. O thou, my God, thy servant save, that puts his trust in thee. Sith, since unto thee I daily cry, be merciful to me. Verses 1 to 7 of Psalm 86, singing to the tune of Belmont.
please stand to pray before the preaching. O Lord Most High, we give thee thanks for this privilege of being in thy house upon thy day, of having made use of the means of grace, Lord, prayer, singing of psalms, the reading of scripture, and now we come uh, to thine ordinary means of saving sinners, of granting them faith in the preaching of the word of God. And Lord, we do not deserve any of these privileges. In fact, we come ill-prepared, and often as we are enjoying them, we are distracted, and we close our ears and harden our hearts. And Lord, thou knowest how stiff our necks are, but we come to thee in thy presence, as thy Spirit is here, to take the letters of the Word of God and apply them to us, And we know that thou art merciful, and as we have just sung, thou art gracious, O Lord, and ready to forgive, and rich in mercy, all that call upon thee to relieve. And we pray, O Lord, that thou would be very merciful unto us this afternoon, and bless the going forth of thy soul-saving word, that it may do us all good, and not just a temporary uh, matter, but it do us eternal good, that we may know our wicked souls are forgiven and taken up uh, to be saved and to be safe with the Lord in heaven, there sitting in heavenly places with Christ, exalted with him, uh, to use the words of Paul in Ephesians. So, Lord, we pray that thou would give that help to hear to the youngest and to the eldest. Lord, however, tired and fatigued we may be in body or mind or in our emotions we pray for strength and help to hear the word of Christ and to grant unto thy servant the help that I need needing much help looking unto thee uh, to be good and kind to thine own flock to give strength and clarity of voice and mind and Lord in taking these words and by thy spirit And Lord, we pray for those that are dead in trespasses and sins, that they indeed uh, may be convinced and convicted of the word and converted by the Spirit. And Lord, that there would be rejoicing in heaven when even one sinner repents. May it please thee uh, to convert and turn even many in due course. We pray thee in the name of Jesus and for the eternal glory of the Redeemer. Amen. And so this afternoon, with the Lord's gracious help, we are continuing with our examination of the prodigal son, the the wasteful son. There's a more modern way of saying prodigal, the wasteful son, the excessive son, who, as we will see in our text today, verses 20 to 24, becomes the restored son, restored to his right mind, restored to his father, restored in his sonship. That's a blessed work of restoration. Many more things we could say 
But it is uh, The Restored Son is the title of the sermon this afternoon, and in four points. Firstly, the details of his repentance, as we will go back a couple of verses uh, to understand uh, afresh uh, some things. It's always good uh, to plumb the depths of the doctrine of repentance. So the details of his repentance. Secondly, the unconditional acceptance by his father. The unconditional acceptance by his father. Thirdly, the restoring of his sonship. And there is much to be said in that point. And then fourthly, the very theme of chapter 15 of Luke. The joyful reaction. The joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth. So the details of his repentance then the unconditional acceptance by his father, thirdly, the restoring of his sonship, and fourthly, the joyful reaction. So firstly, then, the details of his repentance as we retrace our steps into verses 17 to 19, revealing to us more aspects of repentance. Repentance and the doctrine of repentance, we really, really can, and I've mentioned this before, can compare to a diamond that is so well cut that it has so many facets. And that is the beauty of, of a diamond, is depending on which angle you're looking at it, its beauty shines in a different way. And there is a complex glistening of, glistening of glory, we could say, about a diamond. And it's the same with the, the doctrine of repentance. There are many facets many details and many glorious truths to be considered in it. And so this afternoon we see a number of things from those verses 17 to 19. In verse 17 it says, And when he came to himself, he came to himself and he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. Going back to the to the verses before, there is great famine in the land and he is touched by it and he's touched by it more than others because he has no money. He has no money and he has to do a job that as a Jew it would revulse him and yet there he is working with swine and they are being better fed than he is and no man gave unto him. And it might be an indication that he was hired and never received wages that he himself was, as, as a foreigner, as a Jew, uh, that he himself was, was despised and abused by his own uh, employer, as it says, to a citizen of that country, and not even that man gave unto him. And so he came to himself. We see firstly then his dissatisfaction. His dissatisfaction. And he had long been dissatisfied with life in general since his money ran out. Ran out. He He couldn't fill his life with distractions, with food and drink and friends and other matters that we looked at uh, last week. He couldn't distract himself. The money had rung out and so his life was no longer uh, that pleasurable thing. Sinfully pleasurable. Short-term pleasurable. A pleasure that has its roots in hell and has its uh, flowers in the eternal lake of uh, fire, may we say. But he was satisfied with his life. But here he is in hunger and loneliness. He's a stranger in a strange land, as we've mentioned. 
And the world was not satisfying his needs. He had become dissatisfied with the world and certainly with that country and with his society and with its customs. And the world did not supply all his needs and all his desires at all. He was at the receiving end of nothing good and only bad. He was hungry and he was lonely. His friends had fled. His employer was not a kind man, did not take him into his home, did not feed him, did not care for him, shoved him out in the field with the pigs and gave him nothing. And that's just like the sin in the world. Sin and the world promise many things, great things, boasting things. If you do this, you partake in this, you follow the world, you come with the world, the world will love you. And many think that. Think of, think of those who are involved in that great cult uh, called wokeism. And they think, well, if we go along with woke, then everyone will love us and everyone will accept us. But of course, woke is a murderous hate-filled movement, and they often turn in onto their own sort. They often attack their own and cancel their own and hate their own. So that even for those who think that they're ensconced within a movement and they're safe, they're never safe because that is of the world. That is of hate towards God and against his anointed. So it promises much, but it does not deliver the trinkets of the world, the pleasures of the world promise oh so much, but they never, ever deliver. Just like the very first um, temptation to mankind, to Adam and Eve in the garden, promised oh so much, you shall not die, but they did. Spiritually, immediately, and in due course, having a long life in those days, but they did die physically. He said they would be as gods, but they were not as gods knowing good and evil. They were as guilty sinners wed to evil and having lost good. Lies, damnable lies, literally damnable lies. And so he's now seeing the, the emptiness of the world and of sin, dissatisfied with his life and the corruption that sin has wrought in it. To some degree, he has realized it. This is not it. Secondly, his need. His need. He considered how little he had. How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. And now he considers what it would be like to be the lowliest in the kingdom of heaven. And he considers, therefore, his servants the lowliest in, in that blessed place where he, he, he came from. And he would desire to have as little as they had. And he says their little was very much. He needed food for the body. He was hungry. He was starving. But he needed food for the soul also. And the bread of life is abundantly offered to starving sinners in the gospel. And this is a, a state of your soul, it's a description of your soul when we see him in uncleanness, his, his conscience filled with the guilt of uncleanness, a, a cast out there, away, far away from heaven, 
Uh, there he is, far away from, from God, and he is starving, he is emaciated, he is in uncleanness, there is no satisfaction, and he has great need. And now he begins to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the bread of life. Do you have that hunger and that thirst for righteousness, for the righteousness of Christ, for the righteousness wherewith you'll have peace with God? And so this son, he sees his need, but he doesn't just sit there in his need. He doesn't remain sitting with the pigs and coveting their food. He doesn't remain in his lost condition. He must now actively turn from his sin and his rebellion and be restored to his father. His dissatisfaction and his need, and we see thirdly, again, trying to understand these different aspects these beginnings, these middles, these ends of repentance, we see thirdly his sorrowful confession. In verse 18, we see that. He says, I will arise. He doesn't say, I will wait. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him. He sees his guilt. He understands something of his guilt and his manifold guilt for the many sins that he has committed. And so he practices those, the, that words, those words in his, in his mind, shall we say, in verse 18, and we see it's only until verse 21 that he gets a chance to say them in person. In verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, and this is it, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. This prayer, and not only this prayer, makes this, uh, this parable, maybe together with the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man, two of the most exceptional parables for detail. Most other, deta most other parables, as we see the first two in chapter 15, they're just teaching us very simply one uh, spiritual lesson. Uh, and there's not much more to be pulled out. And when we try to pull out more, um, we, we, we are maybe... Um, fearing we are, we are going where angels fear to tread, as it were. But this is a parable so filled with astounding detail that one minute we're in, we're in a strange land and another minute we're in heaven. One minute we have this kind and goodly Father and the next minute we have the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we have this again and again in this contrast and especially we see in this petition that he's practicing to confess his sins before his father. He says that all of his sins are against heaven and before thee, he says. That is in the sight of his father. He has sinned in the sight of his father. He has sinned against his father's honor. He has not kept the fifth commandment. All of his sins, every sin that we do, dishonors both our earthly parents and the heavenly father. But first and foremost, besides having sinned horizontally against other people in the world, he understands this, that he breaks the divine commandments of God, that there is rebellion and hatred against the goodness and the glory of God every time that we sin and when we restrain from repenting of that sin. I have sinned against 
heaven. David understood this too in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Yes, he had sinned against Uriah the Hittite. Yes, he had sinned uh, with Bathsheba. But ultimately, truly and deeply, he had sinned only against God. As he says in verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And when such a prayer is made before God, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against thee. Both are very true. Sin is against heaven. It's where God's abode is. It's where his glory is. It's where his throne is established. And sin is always committed in the sight of God. For God sees all of our sin. And such a confession, we may say, is a clear sign of a godly sorrow. It has a godly sorrow. That is sorrow towards God for sin committed against him. And against his glory and against God's reputation. And so let us say then, these three facets of the diamond of repentance are aspects that we can understand of what true biblical repentance is. Your dissatisfaction with sin and the things of the world, your need of the bread of life for your soul, and your sorrowful confession of sin before God. And if you are not brought to an end of yourself like this prodigal son is, you're brought to an end of yourself and to the end of your sin, you will not see your need of Christ for your soul. You will not have that hunger you will not thirst and hunger after righteousness. And so you will remain in your sin, coveting the husks of the world and surrounded by uncleanness and still not restored to God. And if you do not see your, of your great need of Christ, you will never humble yourself before God and confess your sins. And so may God grant you grace to bring you this far even unto the confessing of your sins before God. You're being honest with God who knows it all anyway and your confession is not just a, a verbal list of these things I've done but it is a sorrow for having done them against God and a disgust that you've done them. It's something here we may say that he's, he's seeing his situation. He's not just... He's not just examining his own heart, but he's seeing the situation around him and it literally stinks. It is unclean. And yet he would be clean. And so like the son, once you've come to yourself, you arise and you come to the Lord with a penitent heart and with expectation. Although you would be happily the least in the kingdom of God, serving in the lowest place, and yet you are to come as he did with expectant hope. And that is really what we see there in verse 20. Verse 19 and 20, there is an expectant hope that I can go all that way, that I can, I can come before the Lord, that I can repent of my sins in all my filth, in all my unbelief, in all my wickedness, and yet I have hope. 
I have expectation. Though he make me uh, the cleaner of the horse stables, though is that's all that I do, although I never be invited to the house, though I never be recognized as a son, and yet, and yet, to be made the lowest of the low is, in comparison with the situation I am in now, is a high point, a glorious place. And so being happy to be the lowest of the low, even as a hired servant, and yet come with expectant hope, because that's what the parable teaches us, to have repentance and to have expectation. Both. Neither are presumptuous, because this is clearly what the Lord is teaching us. So we've seen some details of his repentance, and now we come to in many ways, the high point of the whole uh, parable. Secondly, the unconditional acceptance by his father. The unconditional acceptance by his father. And so to continue on with that expectation, that expectation is realized. That hope is not for nothing. The glorious love and the kindness and the forgiveness that is shown by the Father is to give hope to all. We see it happening and given hope and restoration to his Son, but it's to give hope to all that will hear the gospel that God in heaven is like this to all of these prodigals that return to him. This is who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. To all his prodigals that will humble themselves, that they will arise and they will return to him however they've been humbled. And we could say here, this son has been humbled by providence, yes. Bad things, difficult things in his life have caused him to reflect upon his situation and his situation has got worse and worse and worse and he's come now, as it were, to rock bottom in his descent in life. And there's nowhere else to look down and to cast his gaze and to be distracted into sin because there's nothing there now. And as it were, again, by providence, he begins to look up and see from a mighty height that he has fallen. And beyond the hole, he can see up to heaven. And he sets his sights in a way high, but he's so humbled he sets his sights less than high and wanting to be a hired servant. Humbled by providence, humbled by a clear work of the Spirit within. However that has happened, however they are humbled and yet will return, repenting of their sin. And we see the Father, but firstly we see that He sees the child. He sees His child, He sees His Son. And that's an important thing when we consider these things, but when... He was yet, the son was yet a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. These five glorious things. He sees his child, firstly. Do you remember Hagar? When we were looking at Hagar in Genesis 16, and we saw how Christ came to her in the form of the angel of the Lord. 
And that as she's spending some short time with the angel of the Lord, she comes to the wonderful realization that she is not alone, that the Lord has not abandoned her. In fact, the Lord came looking and for her and found her. Nobody else was. And she saw that she wasn't alone because God was merciful to her personally. And what was that, that realization that she had? God, thou seest me. And so it is here. He sees all those that would return with repentant hearts. He sees you sitting in the pew. And he sees you at home. And he speaks to you through this word that you would return. That you would arise and return and come to God And what did the son have to give to his father? Did he come with any presence? Did he have anything? Because you might say, I have nothing. I have nothing. What am I to go to the Lord with? I might not even have much of my emotions stirred. He had no goods. He had no money. He had no gifts. He had no success. He had no report of a good life. The only thing that the son had was a penitent heart. And he looked to the mercy of God, to the penitent. That's what we see here. We see the Lord is looking, the Lord sees. And this looking Lord is filled with compassion. That's what the second thing that we see. That the Father is filled with compassion. And the compassion that fills this Father is a, an immense compassion. A large compassion. A great compassion. Why? Because God is loving and merciful. How often do we have to read that and see that? that David sings about it repeatedly in the Psalms. It's revealed through the prophets. The Lord himself says that he is loving and merciful. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he will judge the earth with righteousness. Yes, he is wrathful against the impenitent. But he's loving and merciful because he takes pity upon the dirty and broken and disheveled sinner that returns to him. Has nothing. Has sin. Has stains. Has a moral stench or an immoral stench. And why is his compassion filled? Because of who he is, he's loving and compassionate. Because he takes pity, but because he desires to forgive those that would be forgiven of their sins. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And such a God is declared to sinners this afternoon. That there is a God in heaven who sees you and is filled with compassion that he would have his son preach to you. That he would bring you in to hear more about who he is, that you would be encouraged to scare up. Stop waiting, but you would arise and come to your Father, who, while you are yet a great way off, your Father sees you, and he has compassion. And thirdly, we see that he runs. He runs. And when we see that he runs, he runs 
towards him. He's not sort of standing at the gate and, uh, and looking down the gravel road and seeing that small figure of his son. And he's thinking, well, this disheveled figure. And he's thinking, well, I'll wait for him to, to come this way. And I'll just, I'll just stand there tutting and, and shaking my head the whole way as I see him. Look at that wastrel, barefoot, walking home. I sent him away, fully clothed, in his right mind, with shoes on his feet, and this is how he returns to me. Is that the attitude of the father to the repentant son? No. That is not the attitude of God Almighty to the penitent sinner. What do we see? He runs. He runs with great leaps of compassion towards his own son who has become a prodigal, who has become a, a public sinner, who has become a wastrel, who has all that he had worked hard for and he has wasted it and it doesn't matter. How many hundreds of thousands of shekels that he had been given and he had wasted and all, and all the loose women that he had had and all the evenings... Of, of drunkenness and foolishness did not matter. They're not unimportant, but they do not matter when it comes to the life of his own son. So he runs. Imagine this older man running, running down the gravel path, down the hill, and dare I say, with tears of compassion, with tears of joy, but notice what is not mentioned here is that there are servants that run along with the Father. They're only mentioned in, in, in verse 22 that he speaks to them having embraced his son. And these are like unto the ministers of the gospel and they are like unto the angels in heaven. And both are desirous to see the work of salvation in all the prodigals in the world. And to see you close in with Christ to see you restored, to see you born again, to see you saved is the reason for my ministry. And the angels of God desire to look into such things as we're told in 1 Peter 1 and verse 12. So he runs and then by his following actions we see that he has forgiven and accepted the Son. He has forgiven and accepted his son. And how do I know that? How can I say this? Because we see that the father, he sees that sorrow for sin. The, the, the boy is not walking back all proud. The father sees something of that genuine sorrow. He has pity on him. He, he runs to show him that he, he loves him, he forgives him, he receives him. He does not reject him. He doesn't, as it were, come out the gate and, and start shaking his fist and turns the other way and walks the other way. He, he runs to him. And we see that he forgives him and receives him, not in words, but in actions. Yeah, running towards him and then he flings his arms around his child's dirty and smelly neck and he kisses those lips that were stained with sin. And all of that happens before the son uttered one word of repentance and confession. 
before one word had been said. And as I mentioned from the Father, there is no voice of disappointment. There is no face filled with rage. But we see that he rejoices, and we will see more of that in our final point. Please, do you not see what the Lord, through this parable, is teaching you today? That all that would humble themselves in repentance and return to the Lord, that he will in no wise cast you out. That the arms of the Lord are open to those who will repent and return. And that he will receive you with gifts of acceptance and joy and much, much more. And don't start adding into these words, saying yes, but, and if. It was enough that the son came to himself. It was enough that he saw his need he saw his situation, his dissatisfaction with it. He saw his need. He made confession. And he came to his father. Thirdly, the restoring of his sonship. The restoring of his sonship. Let's firstly look at the primary understanding. We can concentrate way too much upon the spiritual meanings of the robe and the ring and the shoes, but we will then quickly forget the context of the parable, which is this. He's wasted his inheritance. He's been brought down low in life to the poorest of the poor. And, and we see this condition that he's in when his father comes to meet him. What is that condition? Well, firstly, he was bedraggled. He was bedraggled. He was, what was he wearing? Dirty and torn clothes. And he stank. He stank from the hunger. Halitosis, bad breath, is from hunger. He stank of poverty. Poverty, again, uh, gives a stench in the body. And he certainly stank because of the pigs. We're thinking spiritually. Of course, he stank spiritually. But keeping it on that human level, he, he stank. I mean, where was he going to get a wash? Where was he going to get soap from? Where was he going to get anything from? And he stank from a long journey. He stank of sweat. And he was covered in dirt. And yet, what does his father say to him when he sees him in this condition? His father quickly desires to cover up that which is unclean, that which is dirty, that which is uh, filthy. And he calls immediately for the best robe. Let's read those verses. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Not just a robe, not just a decent robe. Uh, get him some of those robes that we bought in last week. The best robe, the best robe that's in the house. The most costly robe. The most beautiful robe. Probably his robe. The best robe he had. Beautiful, costly, perfect. And wrap it round this smelly, dirty, filthy, repentant sinner. Secondly, as he arrives, 
He's clearly poverty-stricken. You can see that with the eyes as well as smell it with the nose. There was nothing left of his inheritance. Nothing. He was the poorest of the poor, had nothing but the rags on his body. And all that he had done had earned him nothing. Barely enough to eat with. He had nothing. And what he had, he had spent away. He had it no more. And yet the father says, not only are they to bring forth the best robe, his robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand. Go into my, go into my drawer. Go into my drawer where I, I keep that large and glorious uh, golden ring that the king gave me, for example. Bring that. A ring to declare that you were poverty-stricken, but now you have new riches. New riches are given unto you. Thirdly, he arrives home and he has no shoes. He's barefooted and the state of the feet must be terrible. What happened to the shoes? Did he sell them to get a crust of bread? Had he worn them out on the long journey home? We don't know. The robe would certainly cover his body and cover the dirt and cover his, his rags. But his bare and his blistered feet also needed to be covered. So this is what we see the father doing. Covering his son. Putting on that ring. Putting shoes on of his feet. And then he calls for the fatted calf to be slaughtered. There'll be a party. We could say he gives him clothes fit for a king's feast to be worn. But he covers him. But as I said, the Lord adds so much detail into this parable that it is an exceptional parable. Few other parables have these details, and it is not unreasonable to consider if there is a deeper meaning. When we start comparing Scripture with Scripture and to understand what do these things mean even more than what we've already mentioned and what we've mentioned are the most obvious, worldly, of the world, natural understanding of a father receiving such a son. No, not just a father. A merciful and kind and compassionate father, like none on earth. But that was the primary understanding. Is there a spiritual understanding? There is. And some thoughts on each. Firstly, the robe. The robe that is given to the the repentant sinner that comes to God. There is a robe given. We are filthy and we are naked in our natural fallen state. And what our need is, is to have the atoning work of Christ to cover our sin. And the covering of that sin where we consider with the blood of Jesus is that blood, yes, it washes. It's a, it, it sprinkles the soul and washes it clean, but it is also a sprinkling that covers it is an atoning covenant. And we could say this, we all need a personal day of atonement. We all need, and I trust you know something, of what happens on the day of atonement. Inasmuch as this, it is a day of humbled repentance for the people of God. All other feast days in the Old Testament are filled with 
feasting are filled with joy, coming in the presence of the Lord with joy and with feasting and with drinking. But the one day of the year that the whole nation, the whole church of the Old Testament was to come together in fasting and in prayer was the Day of Atonement. Again, as we were considering this morning, an act of humbled repentance. And so that's what we need, a personal Day of Atonement, a day upon which we are repentant before God, upon which we are humbled before the Lord, but a day also upon which there is a sacrifice made for sin. There's more than one sacrifice, but we just consider the two goats, that there is a goat that is sacrificed, and its blood is poured out for the sins of the people. Yes, there is also a, an ox or a red heifer, but we have that sprinkling of the blood of sacrifice is what we need applied to our soul. But we also need this upon that day that our sins are put upon the scapegoat and taken away. So there is a washing of that sin and the guilt is removed. And all memory, as it were, of that sin is removed far from us. We must have that covering. We must be covered. And we may also say this that after the rebirth, after the Lord has saved us and he has dealt so mightily with our guilt and with our sin and destroyed, which it would say broken the back of our sinful nature and has put a new principle, a new heart, a, new, a renewed soul within us and yet we sin still. And so how are we able to come in 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 in, in in openness and freeness and in prayer into the presence of our now heavenly Father if we are still full of sin. We're staining ourselves all the time, but we do stand justified before God because of Christ. And therefore we need the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ to continue to cover us. To cover us up, to, to cover up the sins of the flesh until the flesh be dead and be resurrected in all holiness. We need the sinful nature. We need that sinfulness. We need those ever-besetting sins or easily besetting sins to be covered. And this is what Christ's robe of righteousness is. It is a perfect righteousness wherewith we are covered. Not just his blood, but also his righteousness a glorious robe to cover the most scarlet of sinfulness, the most foolish of saints need and are covered. It is like unto the robe which Christ wore all the way to the crucifixion. It was a costly robe. It was a perfect robe. And so beautiful was it that the rough, redneck Roman soldiers did not dare rip it up or damage it. No, they cast lots to have it whole. They desired to have it all. And it is a robe that you should desire. It is a robe that you should desire to cover your sinfulness before God. But you need not cast lots for it. You need not be in that time and in that place to obtain it. 
you must turn and you must return. You must repent of your sin. You must come to yourself. You must see your need of a godly sorrow and confess your sins to God. And then God will cover you with that glorious robe. And might we say quite often with garments, as we look at a garment, we may look into the back of the neck or underneath and there'll be a name on there. The property of. And then when you're given the robe of Christ, it also says this, that you are the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the robe. What about the ring? So not only are we dirty and naked, but we are like that rich farmer, the rich farmer who built uh, bigger barns to, to, to fill them with the possessions and the works and the riches and the glories of this world. And yet, just like him, we are not rich towards God. We are in debt to God. We are in God's debt. We have sinned against him. We have done those things we shouldn't have and those things we should have done we have not done and we have nothing that God values. We are not rich towards God. But it is in, by returning, by the way of true repentance, that we receive the riches of Christ in the place of the poverty of sin. And if we have Christ... We are now rich toward God. If we have the riches of Christ, we have peace with God. We have holiness in the inward parts. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have hope of eternal life. But that ring also points to sonship. That the Father gives a ring, maybe the family ring, maybe with the family crest on it, and puts it on his ring. confirms him and that is an indication of our spiritual adoption by the father that true sonship is obtained by all that come to God through Christ and there's even more when we consider this the ring also points to the betrothal the betrothal that we have to be married to Christ as we are part of his bride we're part of his bride, we're part of his household by adoption, we are part of him by possession. Thirdly, the shoes. And the shoes themselves, you might think, what, what, what do they mean? There are some places in Scripture will point to something of the shoes. Now here is something that brings us a little bit closer to God by separating us ever so slightly from the world that is death that will do that completely if we're found in Christ but that's what the shoes do the shoes they separate us ever so slightly from the world we're in the world but we're not of the world the Lord has separated us from them and he has equipped us by shoeing us as it were for life's journey on the way to heaven we must we must still walk the narrow way it's not uh, at conversion, then you're taken away, or at conversion, you're completely sanctified and glorified. No, there is, a, there is a journey, there is a way that you are to walk on, which the Lord will walk with you until he brings you to himself. And so he prepares you for it. He puts you something new to stand on. 
And we could say, well, we stand on the rock Christ Jesus. And yes, that is a, an idea of what the shoes are pointing to. Wherever we are, we're always standing on the same foundation. We're always on the rock Christ Jesus. Wherever we are in life, whichever situation we are in life, the Lord is always there. The everlasting arms are underneath at all times. Secondly, we can consider those shoes to connect it, be connected with the preparation of the gospel. It brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. That we are shod with the preparation of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, the recipient of good news cannot but share that good news. And you've come to the Father, you've heard this sermon, and you have been encouraged to have hope in doing what this prodigal son, that if the Lord would accept so freely and lovingly this prodigal, he will accept me as a prodigal. And so you come, and the Lord saves you. And that is good news for your soul, and so much so that you cannot but tell other people. And the redeemed of the Lord, although they may be hesitant to speak of these things, they cannot hide it. The witness is evident in their life. The life, the new life that has been given to them will reveal itself in their new life, their new living, their new behavior. And so they could be a living witness of grace even without words. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 3 and verse 3, says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart, that you would become a living epistle of the gospel. Not that you're perfect, far from it. But the fruit of the Spirit is becoming evident in your life. Thirdly, walking in the true way, we have those shoes that are given to us, that we would walk in the true way. And maybe we can see this as a picture of a renewed conscience. So it's the conscience in the feet. Well, no, I think it's the shoes show us that we're walking in the true way. Psalm 119, verse 104 says, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. You're discerning. And the conscience is part of your uh, discernment faculty that you would hate every false way, that you would walk in the way uh, of the Lord. And, and fourthly, and connected to this, is being directed by the Word of God. Which the following verse in Psalm 119 informs us. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So four ideas of something of what the shoes mean. But it's being reclothed. We're entirely reclothed in Christ and by Christ. From being dirty, impoverished, unclean in so many ways that the Lord puts these things, as it were, on the outside and but is a spiritual truth for the soul also. Fourthly and finally, the joyful reaction. The joyful reaction, we'll maybe look a little bit more at this next time, for it is a great contrast with the elder brother. 
The feasting we see first of all in, in, in verse 23, and he says, Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and let us be merry. What is the fatted calf? Well, that is the calf that they put to one side that they were, fatting, that they were fattening up for a time of feast. And maybe they would do it at the beginning of the year. Maybe there would be a, a wedding in the family. Uh, maybe there would be a, um, an answer to prayer that there was a great sickness or a great famine and the Lord had, had relieved them of those difficulties. Whatever it was, it was there. It was put aside for a time of great joy and great feasting. And if you've got a calf, just think of the, of the, the many pounds of meat that are available there for so many people to come and feast together at the same time. This was to be a great feast. A great feast for the people to, to eat at. And, and if we want to consider again a, a spiritual aspect. Well the implicate There is a, an idea of sacrifice here. That there is sacrifice and there is blood. That, that it's suggested but it really is more truly I would say in the context. He's received. He's covered. The sacrifice of Christ as implied in the covering with the robe but it's more a picture of the marriage feast of the lamb so when all the prodigals are being brought in as it were the word of the father in his heaven they're all in they're all called in time is no more and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let the marriage feast of the lamb commence and the great contrast then for this young man He's gone from being hungry and empty and lonely to being filled with food and surrounded by family. He's gone from pig slop to prime beef. He's gone from guilt to forgiveness. He's gone from exile to homecoming. He's gone from lost to found. He's gone from sinner to saint. And so feasting begins with joy and with music and secondly we consider that abundant joy. Verse 10, as we've read already, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And, and see how that joy is expressed in the words in verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The compassionate joy of the Father is so expressive of the joy of God over one sinner that repents. And that the Lord desires to be joyful. The Lord is ever blessed. And we see these words that we have before us as we close. For this my son was dead. Yes, you are dead in trespasses and sins. And the Lord knows it, and yet, it says, and is alive again. The preaching of the gospel stirs your conscience and your soul, and the Spirit takes that heart of stone and makes it into a heart of flesh. And he declares, he was lost. You were lost in sins and transgressions and unrepentance and unbelief. And he says, and is found. You found yourself to be outside of Christ, Alone and hungry. Hungry for reunion with God through Christ. And you are found under the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. 
and you are found where faith is preached and faith is worked in the hearts of sinners. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. May the Lord grant you eyes of faith to see the love, the kindness and the compassion of God to all that will come to him in repentance. All your prodigals, come to Christ. Amen. Let us stand to pray. Our Most High God, we do thank Thee for Thy Word. We pray that Thou wilt soften our hearts, that Thou wilt stir our souls, that Thou wilt ease the stiffness of the neck, that Thou would enlighten our minds, that we would have a, an understanding of these matters, that this is not a story to confuse sinners, but to lay out very clearly how they are to come to a restored fellowship with God. Lord, that these are words of hope and expectation. That the Son was in no wise cast out. Not even an angry look or an irritated word. But filled with compassion, he ran. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Lord, may it please thee that we too would arise and come to the Father. And Lord, will thou stare us and move us? Will thou help us, O Lord, forgive our wicked and sinful passivity, whereby we disobey the command of the gospel? But Lord, we pray that thou would give us strength, that we would repent and believe, for we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. Bless thy word to us, not for a fleeting religious emotion, but for an everlasting life in Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen. Let us uh, sing from Psalm 51. Psalm of Repentance. Verses 1 to 7. Psalm 51, 1 to 7. Psalm 51 to the chief musician. He had appointed it to be sung. A very personal psalm appointed by him to be sung in the temple when his son had built it. To the chief musician. Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. After thy loving kindness, Lord, have mercy upon me, for thy compassions great blot out all mine iniquity. Verses 1 to 7, Psalm 51, singing to the tune of cooling.
receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.